All of us deal with fear. All of us have to deal with pain. Many people run to the wrong solution when they're really struggling with fear and really struggling with pain. And today, my guest on Unbiddable, Matt Bostick, has figured out the recipe on how to really handle fear and pain and do it in a way that doesn't wreck your life. I'm going to just turn things over to him and let him tell you how to handle your fears and pain on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. This episode is brought to you by the Solomon Foundation. These guys are amazing. They've got more than 7,000 investors and they're helping the local church grow. And if you partner with the Solomon Foundation, you're going to get an excellent return while making an eternal impact. Thank you, Solomon Foundation, for sponsoring this episode. Now, take it away, Matt. Hey, Matt, thanks for agreeing to be my guest today on Unbeatable. What an honor, man, opportunity to meet a new friend and to talk about life, man. I love it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting to know you. I've read a little bit about your story online, but we've never talked in person. So, man, I'm excited to be able to let the listeners hear this pretty incredible story that you've been through. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. If I understand right, though, we got to go back to your childhood because it sounds like you grew up like in a fairy book or I mean a fairy tale, you know, kind of childhood like you, you, you had the whole uh, two parents, white picket fence kind of uh, upbringing. Is this right? Yeah, it was like Mayberry. I grew up in Greensburg, Indiana, small farming town where it was basketball and cows, you know, and I had two parents that loved me passionately. I mean, my dad had a banner that hung in his office that I could see every night before I go into my bedroom that said, my son is an All-American. And I was in fifth grade. There's no All-Americans in fifth grade, but I read that sign every night from being a fifth grader until a senior in high school. And my dad always just, I believe in you. You're the greatest. And they, two parents that loved each other. Um, And, you know, we just had an amazing, I had just zero bad men, which is so rare. I look back on my, yeah, we had the teenage things that we go through, hormones, girls, but sure. as far as the, the the family dynamics, we ate dinner together. My parents just loved me. They affirmed me. They believed in me. And that was my mindset uh, going off to college to play basketball. Okay, so a couple of things that I just noticed there. One, you have a based on the statistics in the United States, a very unusual childhood if you have not only two parents in the home, but two parents who love you, who are pouring into you. Um, Because in our day and age, when you and I grew up, man, that just wasn't the norm. And secondly, you grew up in Indiana, which is a massive basketball community in the United States. So no doubt that you're uh, growing up playing ball and wanting to go off to school, how did you get connected? How did how did basketball get into your veins? Well, you know, they say that whatever falls on you at age 10 makes an imprint in your heart like concrete, like wet concrete. And <laughs> okay. so my dad, he knew that. And I have asked him, I said, why did you put me in all these situations where basketball will become the love of my life? And he said, well, I could tell it's something that you were passionate at 
And so he would take me to the Indiana Pacer games, you know, and my really? dad was a, oh yeah, we would go to NBA games and, and watch the Indiana Pacers play. Wow. And, uh, my dad was a sports broadcaster as a side job for 33 years. So he would call high school basketball games on the radio. And so really? I would go you with did. him nice. and sit with him in Indiana high school basketball they only play on the weekends. The whole town shut yep, down, and yep. I would have five and six thousand people at a high school basketball game just playing the local rival across town, you know. And so we just—that's what we love to do, and that was a family thing in basketball. Uh, and it was my go-to yeah. if I was having a hard day. I'd go shoot free throws, and and I always found that that round ball and that hoop to be challenging, but also comforting and. And so uh, I just knew I wanted to, you know, thankfully I got a, a scholarship to play college basketball at Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee. And so when I left high school, it was very natural. Here's the scholarship that I believe God provided, and uh, that was the next step for me. And, and it turned out to be a very pivotal one uh, in my life. I didn't realize how big of a deal basketball is until I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, to North oh, Kentucky. Yeah. And that's when I was introduced to how crazy both the northern part of Kentucky and oh. Indiana is. Like basketball is king there. King. And as you king. said, the whole town shuts down to watch a high school basketball game there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I mean, you're a senior in high school and you're going to the grocery store and some little boy sees you and you're signing autographs. You're signing autographs as a high school student. Because this kid just wants to be near you because yeah. you wear the jersey of the team. He And that was me when I was a kid. It's a generational thing. You just, yeah. you want to wear the jersey on Friday nights, represent your town. And, uh, you know, it's just thick with that kind of tradition and history there in Indiana and Kentucky. Uh, well, so we're doing this interview not long after the NBA finals. I don't know yeah. much about the game of basketball at all, but you got to tell me, uh, your thoughts on how this thing turned out because I was quite surprised by the way that the NBA finals ended up. Yeah. Denver won last night as a matter of yeah. taping this, you know, Denver right. beats Miami in their first ever NBA championship in 40 some years. And so I you was, could feel the crowd just so excited, you know? I was blown away when I read the news statistic or when I read the uh, the news headline this morning. Like, what? I didn't expect that to happen. I don't think anybody expected that to happen. No, it's the beauty of sports. Yeah. First championship ever. Way to go, ever. Denver Nuggets. Long time. Yeah. Okay. So you grew up with a pretty ideal childhood. You go off to college to play ball. By the way, you went off to a Christian school, right? Yeah. And, um, which turned out to be pivotal for me. I did. I wanted to go to Butler University and walk on. Uh huh. My mom, great was basketball just, school, by the way. Oh yeah, my but my mom was just passionate about. No, she fell in love with the coach of this college. Uh huh. And she said, "That's where I, I want this guy to to raise you the next four years. Be under his leadership the next four years." And she was right. Yeah. So I already know this part of your story, but why don't you describe for the le uh, listener what happens during that first year of college at home to you personally, you know, what happens to your faith and everything else, man? Yeah, actually, the first year was great. Freshman year, okay. zero hiccups. Second year of college. Great, great freshman year. And the next year as I'm coming back, um, it was I was on campus for two, uh, about two weeks. And I got a phone call. And my dad said, hey, your mom's really sick. And I said, really? You know, she have a cold or something? And she, he said, no, she's got zero energy. And anyway, 48 hours later, she was diagnosed with leukemia. 
And we buried her nine months later from that phone call. Wow. And that was, uh, as you can imagine, growing up the way I did and, uh, and then seeing my best friend, the woman who poured into me, who was excited about my future wife and kids who now she's never going to meet. Uh, we bury her. And it was a, it was a real moment of a PTSD moment for me. Yeah. As I look back, it's the, it rocked my worldview. What I thought I knew about God or, or whatever. Uh, I was very confused and very hurt and in shock of, I've never faced anything like this. Yeah. And my, and then my dad remarries, uh, he starts dating six weeks later, remarries six months later to my high school choir teacher. I want to go back to the, Hey, your mom is sick. At this point, you guys have not, have no indication that anything is wrong, right? No, not at all. I had talked to her two weeks before she was walking with my dad on a golf course and she was going up a hill and she said, I feel really tired tonight. And, hmm. uh, and I believe now with med, you know, the medicines they have out there, they actually say with what she had, she died of a Philadelphia chrome le uh, leukemia uh -huh. type. And they said now she would have 30, 40 years. But back then, really? they didn't. They tried a bone marrow transplant that went bad. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we were just shocked. We go from amazing to a funeral uh, in a matter of moments. Okay, so what I'm, I want the listener to hear right now is the flash to bang on your life is kind of the textbook, picture perfect, yeah. what every child would have wanted to grow up to. It all falls apart, and it all falls apart really fast. So your mom passes away nine months after diagnosis. You just said it. Your dad meets somebody and marries somebody yeah. and and. Tell everybody the timeline on this, but more importantly, tell them how that impacted you personally. Yeah. You know, I had, like I said, two parents that were my best friends. We had this awesome family dynamic to now it's destroyed. And I basically lost my mom and my dad within nine months. And I'm in a formidable time of my life. I'm in college um, and I, I'm dreaming, what do I want to do with my life? And now I'm, I feel orphaned completely. And everything that I thought I knew was turned upside down. And I realized that, man, I better realize, I'm trying to figure out what do I believe? What do I do with this fear that I've yeah. never had before in my life? And this is something that you talk about unbeatable. I was defenseless against yeah. this chapter of my life with the pain that I was feeling. Um, lots of people, their parents, one parents passes, the other marries and moves on maybe more quickly than the children are prepared for. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in that case, in this case, it sounds like that's definitely true of your father, but I, I don't, I'm not sure that if the average listener understands why that's so hard for some, uh, families to deal with when the surviving, uh, spouse moves on and, and remarries quickly. Yeah. And, I've asked my dad, you know, he died a few years ago, but I, I said, why so quick, dad? And he's like, you know, I wanted to do it again. I loved your mom so much. I was miserable alone. I have two older wow. sisters, eight and 10 years old. They were out of the house already. Yeah. And so it was basically an only child. But my dad loved my mom so much. And they say it's a sign of a healthy, like first marriage. If yeah. you want to do it again and uh -huh. that quick, he was miserable alone. She was his best friend. And so when he remarried, I didn't know that then, you know, my gosh, I'm 20. I'm thinking, what you selfish SOB, yeah. like, what oh, are yeah. you doing, yeah. man? 
like, what about me? You know, and uh, I had a counselor tell me because I was frustrated, man. I, I went and played basketball overseas after she died. I played a 40-game season in the Philippines, Hong Kong, and China. This was pre-internet days, cell phone. And I hadn't seen my dad, so we bury my mom. I go away and play a 90-game season. And my dad meets me in Hawaii on the way back. And I can't wait to share. This is when he tells me he's getting married. But uh-huh. I, I couldn't. I hadn't seen him. I hadn't talked to him. There was no Instagram. There was no cell phone. Right. So my dad meets me in Hawaii. We had never been there together. And this is my dad, who was my best friend. We grew up going to games together, quality time. In the first six hours of him seeing me for the first time all summer, he says, I'm getting married. Surprise. And as a matter of fact, I'm not even staying here a full week with you in Hawaii. I'm going back in the morning. Yeah. And I can still, Jeff, hear that door shutting of him leaving in Hawaii. And I began to drink at that moment and find any kind of substance that could, I didn't want to feel that abandonment or that pain ever again. Yeah. And, uh, and I realized going back and we'll, we'll, I guess we'll get to that in a second, but my counselor once had told me, he said, Matt, you're, how old were you when that happened? I said, 20. And he said, your dad had hoped at that point he had raised a man. He was only thinking about it his himself, he was hoping mm-hmm. he had. And when I saw it from my dad's perspective, that resentment, that twenty—I I didn't catch it till I was forty—but that twenty-year resentment towards my dad left me when yeah. I looked at it from his perspective. Um, Matt, as I read your story, man, it sounds like your mom passing, your dad moving on so quickly, man, it really hits you hard, and you go into a pretty intense downward spiral. Can you describe that for a little bit? Yeah, it was, uh, I'd never experienced pain and fear, that combination, ever, and which is so rare. Yeah, My really? whole childhood, I was never afraid of anything because mom and dad had my back. They loved me. We went to church every Sunday. I was told that God was going to take care of me. And now I'm experiencing the death of really two parents. And fear and pain mixed together was this concoction for what do I do? How do I make the world back up? How do I get rid of that? I can't sleep. I'm having nightmares for the first time. I never had a nightmare. I, don't, I can't remember a nightmare in my teenage years, honestly. And now I can't sleep at night. I'm seeing her take her last breath every night. I can't. Yeah. I can't and it's sleep. going over and over again in your head, right? Yeah. Right. And what do I do? And so I had never used any substances growing up in my life. Never had a need for it. Never wanted to be around it. Never had really a desire for it. And I had a friend say, hey, man, when I can't sleep, I drink. I said, really? And uh, I wasn't even old enough to drink, so I took his ID. He kind of looked like me. Uh-huh. Went and bought a fifth of Jack Daniels. And me and Jack became pretty good friends the next okay. 20 years. I, be- I began to drink, and it-, it allowed me to... I had a blackout the very first time I drank. I drank until I couldn't feel that anymore, uh-huh. whatever I was feeling, whatever fear and that began the pattern then of this was my solution, the only solution. And it worked for me until it didn't work any longer. But it worked. <laughs> wow. I went to sleep, I blacked out, and I thought I had found the answer. And uh, 
you just described perfectly about a thousand of my buddies from the army who are <laughs> doing the I'm serious, are doing right yeah. now today, doing the exact same thing that you were doing. And yeah. they don't use this language. I wish they heard you say this. It worked for you until it didn't work anymore. And yeah. then when it doesn't work anymore, uh-oh, I'm I'm in trouble, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But boy, it worked. And it and uh but it began a pattern of hiding. It began a pattern of health issues. It became a pattern of conviction, and uh, it was a journey. But it, yeah. that's where it, everybody's got a starting line. That yeah. was my starting line to a new life um, and really became two different people for the right. first time. I learned how then to be a, a chameleon. There was St. Matt, and then there was Matt. And uh, St. Matt, I like that. There was the Matt that I could go back to my childhood and impress a coach or a teacher yeah. The president of the college, you said, "Hey, we got some concerns, man, about you." And I went into Saint Matt mode and almost like a script, you know. Yeah. And then there was the real Matt who didn't know how to say, it. "Help! I'm hurting. I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do with this fear, uh, this pain. I didn't know how to call someone and, and describe what I was feeling, and then be honest about what I'm really doing when no one's watching." I. Man, I want to drill down on this for a little bit because you're describing something that's common to all people. Everybody deals with fear. We all have to deal with kind of the pain of life and insecurities when the rub gets rubbed out from underneath us. And I I really lost count a long time ago of the number of people that I know who turn to the bottle when they're really struggling with fear and with pain and insecurity it's rampant in the United States. It's rampant, really, in military communities all over the world. Yeah. Um, it's the drug. It's the unofficial drug of choice when people are struggling, and it's yeah. kind of the um, it's the drug that everybody turns a blind eye to. It's acceptable. Yeah, and I want to. I, I just want to say this: when it comes to the subject of alcohol, man, there's three types of people out there, and I have absolutely no issue with that kind of person, first type of person that has some social drinks, wants to go out with some friends and have a couple of drinks. Got no issue with that. In fact, I think there's absolutely nothing morally, ethically, spiritually, even physically wrong with that. There is the kind of person that has a few too many drinks from time to time. Now you start to get into a gray area. Yeah. But the kind of person that you're describing right now, Matt, I know thousands like that. And this is when you're using alcohol as a drug to numb the pain. Yeah. And I want to say it this way, man, you're temporarily numbing the pain. In your case, it worked for 20 years, but it's still temporary. Yeah. And the problem with using alcohol to numb the pain is you're not really treating the source of pain. You're just numbing it. Which yeah. means at some point, either you're going to die of cirrhosis of the liver or you're going to yeah. have to deal with the pain. One of those two options are going to have to happen at some point. Yeah. So can you just describe, it doesn't need to sound rational, but why run to something that's temporary and numbing the pain instead of doing the hard work of dealing with the pain and working through it to make the pain actually go away? Yeah, well, I was uneducated on alcohol first. Like I didn't know 
the long-term effects or I didn't know what I was getting myself into. It was easily acceptable and a lot of people could do it without any repercussions. And so um, that just became the easiest. It's at every convenience store, every Absolutely. gas station. It's on every yep. commercial. It looks so awesome. Two Coronas in your buddy. And and I wish I could have that. I've got friends, like I, like you said earlier, man, that can drink without impunity. They have no problem. They can have a beer tonight or on the golf course and never think about it again. I lock, you know, I became that person that was obsessed with it because it's the one thing that began to work because I, I, I felt my self-confidence come back after that second beer. I felt that um, the problems will go away tomorrow. It made the world back up. It was the only yeah. thing that I found that right. temporarily made the world back up. But I didn't understand that I had, you know, as I learned, I really have an allergy to it. I process alcohol differently than most people. You know, I have uh, six kids and my three daughters are now married. Congrats. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a grandfather. Yeah, all right. Way to go. And uh, I've got my, my oldest daughter. She'll have a glass of wine and she's ready for bed. You know, she could take it or leave it. My middle daughter, if she's got a glass of wine, she's ready to go to the club. You know, let's <laughs> yeah. roll. And I could see that in me, you know, uh -huh. and her and I've had many, many conversations. They're my best friends, but I, I see that in different people, you know, yeah. how they process alcohol differently and left unchecked. If you're that person that can develop tolerance is what I've learned over 20 years of studying it. If you can develop a tolerance to alcohol, it's something that you should inventory. Yeah. I'll say it that way. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, would you just describe a little bit about how this impacted your life? How did alcohol and, and not just alcohol, but the downward spiral of your losing basically your mom and your dad, uh, so to speak, how this really impacted you? So substitute anything, alcohol, pornography, cocaine, whatever it yep. is that you run to. I, I For me, alcohol is accessible and that's what I, that I, that I use. But it, it began if I was frustrated. So say I have a bad day at work, you know, when I left college, I began teaching high school, you know, and if I was frustrated, the first moment, the first thing that popped into my head for the first time in my life wasn't, let's go get a good workout in, let's go take a walk with the wife. It was, whew, I got six beers in the uh -huh. fridge and that, and that's faith, right? Believing in something that's going to happen right. in the future. That's good. And I began to put faith in that substance of Hey, if I'm going to a, you know, now we're going to a family function, maybe I'm, I'm going to feel uncomfortable there. Oh, beer's there. It's okay. Uh -huh. You know, it'll get me through. Right. And so it became the norm to get me through whatever emotion that I was feeling. And it was taking a toll on me, on my health, on my marriage and on my dreams and my passions uh, because it was numbing it. It was numbing the, the dreaming center of my brain and helping me make good decisions. When you begin to drink in excess, the CFO part of your brain and the cerebral cortex goes away. Yeah. And now I have a new CFO calling the shots. <laughs> yeah. And uh, not a good recipe for right. making a career out of and being honest and being authentic. Yeah. And I was about to say, almost everybody listening has a example of a buddy who did something really, really stupid when they were drunk and the next yeah. morning would give their right arm to yeah. make it go away. But you yeah. did what you did was just uncategorically stupid, but it was yeah. the alcohol that made it possible yeah. for you to Absolutely. do stupid. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and what they're hearing from you now, Matt, is, yeah, man, that's what I was turning to regularly. 
And it was stealing, and I'm using this language, not you, stealing your dreams, stealing your marriage, stealing your future, and you didn't even know it at the time. It was just a temporary tool to make the pain and the fear go away. Yeah. Yes, sir. Matt, you finally get to, I don't want to call it rock bottom, but there's finally somebody who steps in and says, hey, St. Matt, I'm calling you out. You're not, uh, you know, you're not the saint you're appearing to be. Yeah. Let's talk about the moment that Captain Bill showed up and said, man, wow. it's your t- it's time for you to get this under control. Yeah, I was speaking at an event. You know, I've loved to communicate. I watched my dad do it all growing up. Something I just love to be around people and to share. And um, I was speaking at an event. And when I got finished, this gentleman approached me and said, do you want to get breakfast tomorrow morning? And I'm like, yeah, man, absolutely. Thinking, man, he loved the talk. And yeah, I just knocked it out of the park, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I said, absolutely. He said, meet me for breakfast in the morning. And uh, I thought, great, man, business owner. So we go uh, have coffee the next morning. And within 10 minutes of uh, of us talking, now I'd never met this guy in my life. He just watched me give a, a commencement speech. Uh-huh. I was actually speaking at a graduation. And he said, uh, you may be alcoholic. Just like that, out of the blue, 10 minutes into a breakfast conversation. And for the first time in my life, I feel seen. And it's like I've seen a ghost. Honestly, I couldn't. So I begin to, oh, what are you, what are you talking about? (laughs) Of course. He's like, well, do you drink? Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I do. Does anybody know how much you, and he starts just lovingly asking me really honest questions that I had never had this conversation with anybody in my life, ever. A coach, uh, anybody had ever seen me the way this guy was seeing directly into my soul. Yeah. I lied to him like you do a doctor. Yeah. You go into a doctor, so how many, man, your triglycerides are a thousand. Do you drink a lot? Oh, I have two, and you know, two a night. You know, I began that spiel like I'm uh-huh. talking to a doctor because I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm a man, right? We're so, right. we got to defend our, our ego and our pride and, uh, here I am thinking this guy was going to tell me what a great communicator I am. And he's speaking into my soul. And uh, I left that. And I so I we, we finish up. I totally lied to him the whole time, you know, just debunk his theory on he's got Matt figured out. He had Matt figured yeah. out. Oh, yeah. But it was so uncomfortable. You got to get out of there, right? Oh, man. I'm driving home like, what did I just go to? Yeah. And it wrecked me. It wrecked my soul. And uh, I thought about him for years after that, daily. Every time really? I would go to, to use alcohol wow. to numb something, I thought of Captain Bill. Wow. Down the road, he's dead now. And he, he died with 35 years of sobriety. But I remember when I got, I finally put a year of sobriety together, I called him. I found him. He was somewhere in Florida. He's like boat captain. That's where Captain Bill came All from. right. I found him and I let him know that, hey, I got a year sobriety and he cried we cried but uh awesome, it was bro. awesome but it it took 20 years yeah of, of of trying to debunk captain bill's theory in my life because i can handle this right um this isn't i don't need anybody's help if i've got a problem with alcohol i can do it on my own I'm a man right pull myself up from my bootstraps i don't need help with this couldn't have been further from the truth yeah yeah well if if it wasn't for God placing a guy like Captain Bill in your path, like a breakfast that just radically um, unsettled you, who knows where you'd be today? Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I'd also like for you to describe a little bit about just how bad you mentioned this passing a couple of times already, but how bad losing your mother and your father moving on so quickly shook the foundations of your faith. Yeah. Why did it shake your faith so bad? And, and yeah. kind of what did it take for you to climb out of that hole? Yeah, it's weird because I've always felt a call to uh, honor God with my life. I, I wanted to be in ministry. I, I've always loved, uh, you know, the church. And I, uh, but this completely, the image I had of God, right, was completely destroyed when I knew that. I mean, this is the God of the universe. You couldn't let her hang That's around right. for three you or four more let years. My, you couldn't let my mother live to see her grandchildren. She's never going to see my wife. Right. She's never going to see my kids. And so this image of a loving God was out the door, and, and I began to drink it. God, drink it, my dad. I didn't know. I didn't know what to do with this new fear, and I was defenseless against it. I had no idea how to overcome it. And so when I would drink, it would just put it off till tomorrow. Yeah. Right. And we do that with a lot of things in our life that we don't want to face today. Right. We'll deal with it tomorrow. I'll put that in my inbox yeah. and I'll deal with it tomorrow. Well, that tomorrow was 20 years of tomorrows. And, you know, I, and no matter what I tried to do, I tried everything. I, I thought, well, I tell you what. I went and saw my mom's grave once. Uh, I, I had, she had been dead maybe six, seven years. My dad's remarried now. I go visit my dad in Indiana to see him. I just had a, a baby. And uh, our first, um, I'm sorry, it was, our, it was our third. We were just, we just found out we were pregnant yeah, all with right. our first boy. I'm sorry. So we got, and we got a boy in my wife's belly. She's Italian. I believe we could have had a hundred kids. She's beautiful. <laughs> She's right. Italian, man. All right. Anyway, so we're driving to Indiana to see my dad. We're pregnant with our fourth. I go see my mom's grave. Hadn't been there in a while. And just reminiscing, I'm in Indiana. I'm visiting my mom's grave. And I go back home that night, can't sleep. And I find on my dad's shelf, the Guinness Book of World Records. And so that's a fun book to read. I mean, they've got crazy stories, yeah. in it, right? And you can just right. flip and it's like the modern day scrolling. You know, you yeah. just, I'm just reading flipping pages when you actually read a book with two hands and paper, you know, and I'm, I'm reading about these stories of a guy that had eaten an airplane. He had broken it down in metal and it swallowed the whole plane. I'm reading all ate these an airplane. Yeah. Holy so I'm, I'm, smokes. Yeah. Reading all these stories of how he's a world record holder because he swallowed an F40, you know, or whatever. The plane was an airplane, an airplane. Yeah. And so uh, I, I come across a guy that had made over 6,000 three point shots in 24 hours. He had made 6,000 shots in 24 hours. And I can't I can't sleep now. I'm doing the math in my head. Man, if I make 400 shots every 45 minutes, take a 10 minute break, I can beat this guy's record. And so. We're driving back to Maryland where we were living at the time, my wife and three kids, and I won't shut up about breaking this world record. Honey, I can do this. And she said, honestly, I haven't seen you have this much life in really? years. And wow. I said, and we're going to name the nonprofit Shoot for Life. Wow. And honestly, I thought, Jeff, that this new thing, I could, I could, if I break a world record, I won't need to drink again. It'll I'll pull me best. out of the hole, right? Yeah, I'd be the best in the world. I tried moving. That didn't work. I tried to you know, move zip codes. Yeah. But unfortunately, Matt and Matt's resentment showed up in the new zip yep. code. I tried jobs. Unfortunately, Matt and uh -huh. Matt's resentments and pain still showed up. So I thought, well, if I'm the best in the world, this will do it. And so 
we trained for nine months. I am at the gym every day trying to break this record. And so it's the night before the big event. We've got media coming. I've got 50 of my closest teammates from over the years and friends flying nice. into the event because they got a rebound for me. Oh, we yeah. got a video it from two different angles. Guinness uh, makes a huge production. Yeah. So the night before the event, now I had trained for nine months and kind of put a cork in the bottle a little bit because I'm training so hard. I, I was still drinking, but not to excess and uh, just enough to, you know, take the edge off or whatever. And my, my buddies say, hey, Matt, let's go to the bar. Let's get a couple of drinks tonight so you can relax and you'll be ready to go tomorrow for this 24-hour marathon that you're about to embark on. Uh-oh, I think I yeah. know how this is going to go. Yeah, so we go to the bar. They all have two. I have two with them. We go back to the hotel. They fall asleep. I can't. So I sneak out. Sneak out. These are my best friends. You know you might have a problem yeah. when you're about when to you're break a When you're hiding from your best friend. It's midnight. I steal my best friend's keys. Sneak down to the lobby, drive to a liquor store, come back, finish off an 18-pack of Coors Light. Mm. He wakes up at 4 wow. o'clock in the morning to go to the bathroom. There's beer cans everywhere, and I'm sitting there holding a beer. And he says, and this is my best friend, what is wrong with you? You're about to set a world record. There's beer cans everywhere. Yeah. You're going to go do a cardio event for 24 hours. Like, And I remember the, the sheer horror on his face of, what are you doing? Yeah, right. And I remember driving to the liquor store thinking of Captain Bill feeling completely defenseless on how to get through yeah. this next 24 hours. Wow. I show up at the event and uh, that's really the sidebar. If you ever Google, I've done three world records, but the first one my friends will say, that is the one everyone should know about. That dude was hammered. <laughs> yeah, he was still hours. drunk for, yeah, I was oh, going to say, yeah. still drunk for most of oh, the, the world record. Sweating it out. And they're all, I mean, and I had cramps so bad when I, I ended up breaking the world record. Uh, very thankful. That platform has been awesome. Yeah. Um, anyway, so they had to carry me out on a stretcher. I was <laughs> cramped so bad at the end of, I made 6,272 three-point shots. All right. And I, and I did it two hours early. And when I was finished, I cramped so bad, I couldn't even take a step. I would get a cramp from my Achilles up through my back. They had to put oh me on a goodness. stretcher and an old station wagon to get me home. <laughs> but I thought that that would be it. You know, I thought that is, if you I could thought, just do I just, something. I just made something to myself. I've yeah. got a world record. Nobody <laughs> else in the world can say that I just world. did. Yeah. And it wasn't. And I was going to say, it'll let you down, didn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. That didn't. Man, it was fleeting. And, uh, you know, it, it didn't last. And, and so we moved again to Alabama. And that's when I began to get some traction. Thankfully, I had many rock bottoms. Every rock bottom had a trap door to go lower. And, uh, and finally, um, we moved to Alabama. And uh, I had a... a I started pastoring and then uh, drinking again while while pa I'm pastoring a church wow. and I have a hidden addiction to alcohol. Yeah. And I just couldn't beat it, man. It was the one thing in my life I couldn't beat on my own. Yeah. And uh and I, I was gonna say there are a lot of guys and gals that spend their whole life chasing after some goal. When they finally reach that goal, when they finally accomplish like the dream of their life, they are totally defenseless because they're completely let down. And now I spent my whole life trying to do this. I've just done it, but it didn't fill me up the way that I thought it would. 
and I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. And they go off the rails after one of the greatest accomplishments of their life because of how bad it let them down. In your case, I know the church world like you do. Alcohol and church life do not mix very well. It's a volatile combination. So when did you finally get the help that you needed, man? So I'm pastor in a church and I resigned uh, because I'd had some blackouts for the first time. My alcoholism had progressed and uh, I got asked to speak in an event called Light the Night in Montgomery uh-huh. where they're going to honor uh, cancer patients. Thousands of people are going to be there. And before the event, I got nervous and uh, I thought, well, I'll go have a glass of wine and uh, I'll, then I'll take a nap and I'll be great tonight. All I remember is having that first glass of wine, uh, and they found me four hours later, uh, two wine bottles broken beside the car, and they took me home. And then I wake up at like 1030, and I just remember in my bed, it's dark, and I run out, and my wife's like, we took care of it. We told them you were sick, you know, and that was the beginning of the end for me. Um, I eventually resigned uh, because I just couldn't. I couldn't beat it on my own. Yeah. And uh, it was during that moment Then my wife said, Matt, I love you. Um, you're my best friend. Our marriage is great. But your your decision to drink has made the rest of us and your family sick. And yeah. we need some time apart. And so uh, I, I moved out of the house. We separated. And uh, that's the beginning of me finding a solution greater than myself uh-huh. to beat the biggest obstacle um, that had destroyed everything that I loved. I know, like you, lots of guys who went down the road with alcohol. For some of them, it was prescription painkillers. For others of them, it was porn. 50 other addictions or vices out there, which started off very simple, very mild, and eventually consumed their life and cost them far more than they ever thought they would have to give. And many of them, Matt, you're an exception because many of them are still stuck in it and they can't find their way out of it right now because they've dug a hole so deep that the getting out of it is going to be very painful and probably cost them the rest of their life. So they're stuck in it and it's going to cost them that what started off very simple, very mild will eventually cost them their life. Um, You and I want to compliment you, man. You do the hard work. You work your way through it. But Matt, many guys and gals that you and I know try to get sober, try to get healthy, don't ever get there, turn back to the bottle again and again. We're not going to criticize them. But I do want to ask, like, you learned some things along the way, man. And your life took a different turn after you started to get healthy and started to get sober how was it that you were finally able to beat this addiction that many people are not able to beat and they'll spend the rest of their life under? Yeah. Well, Jeff, I beat it today. I can tell you today I'm not going to drink. And tomorrow, any alcoholic that I know will just say, I, today I'm sober. Tomorrow is I a whole other story. I did some spiritual work this morning that I know is going to carry me through the rest of today. And I know if I do that tomorrow, I got a good chance of not drinking tomorrow. But I had to do some really some self-examination, man. I had, I came to a point where I said, all right, I need a power greater than myself to defeat this. Yeah. And I knew about God my whole life. I'm pastoring a church, but I didn't know the difference between loving God and then walking under the authority of God and fearing God. People say the fear of God. And I finally learned 
what it would be like to, to live without him again. And that's the fear of God that I began to tap into. Because you hear that, you need to fear of the Lord. It's a different kind of fear. Oh, yeah. Now, now I began to learn what it's like to fear God. If I ever come out of your protection again, that's what I'm afraid of. Uh-huh. And I began to, to walk into that uh, for the first time in my life. The difference between, yeah, I love God, believe in him. But I had to tap into the supernatural power that 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 God, who I believe is Jesus, um, offered me. And uh, boy, it was painful. But I began to learn that he loved me unconditionally, that he knew every ounce of pain that I was going through and that I had a chance to daily tap into a supernatural power source from him that could help me get through today. Yeah. And that's what I began to walk in for the first time in my life at 40. I was 43, 44 at the time. Grand, and I, my grandchild now, my first one, uh, Rowan, he'll be four this year. He's never seen people. That's what he calls it. All right. He's never seen people drink. And he hasn't because it has nothing what Matt did. Right. I had to humble myself and, and start taking suggestions from a God, now a father figure that I trusted. Because when my dad remarried and mom died, I put all that blame on oh, God. Yeah. And yeah. so the thought of a father figure and I had a bitterness towards the, even though I'm pastoring a church, I had a bitterness towards religion and people that were hiding, drinking. And here I am just wrecked from it. Anyway, God had to, through a lot of hard work and a good counselor, um, had to reestablish some things. And I stepped into a relationship with God that redefined everything in my life. And I began to get some really good tractions and, and traction. And God began to give back to me a lot of the things that I had destroyed. Yeah. Matt, you really are unbeatable. And you've mentioned a couple of times during this episode the help that a counselor gave you. One of the yeah. reasons why I call you unbeatable is because you have the wisdom and the strength to say, I can't figure this one out on my own. I need some help. I'm going to get some counseling. There are still guys and gals that have been wrestling with something for 20 years that haven't come to the point of realizing, I haven't, I can't beat this one on my own. And I hope they're listening to you right now and saying, I'm going to find some outside help. Yeah. But man, um, a lot of people share your opinions about the established church, about religion, and about God. Like God... The people that I see in church, they're all hypocrites, and I'm not going to argue that they're not. What I heard from you and read from you in the Bible, that's not what I'm experiencing in my daily life. God, you let me down, and so I'm done. Um, And they never get back to where you are today, uh, where you've kind of arrived at today. So for just a second, I want you to talk to that guy or that gal who is hurting. Maybe they're blacked out with some broken wine bottles around them. They're hurting. They're afraid. They're in pain, but they don't feel like I can trust God because he's let me down and let my mother die or my dad bailed on me when I really needed them. What would you say to that person right now? Yeah. So I had those, those same thoughts and my counselor had to really pull this out of me, you know, because I am a person of faith, right? So you had, I, I did believe um, in the Bible, and I believe what Jesus had said, right? So I had to, if I'm going to go down that, if I'm, if that's my worldview, then I need to really go all in and, and take some suggestions, right? 
And so I had to get to the point where I had to realize this isn't about me. Yeah. And that was the hardest for, for 20 years. My mom died. It's about me. My dad remarried. It's about me. I had to get to the point where I was like, all right, this isn't about me. There's a greater purpose uh-huh. here going on. And so I had to do what my counselor had suggested. That was the hard part. It's one thing to get a counselor, <laughs> but then to yep. do what they tell you to do. Right. right. And and he said, you know, if you want to um, if you want to grow and get rid of these resentments that you have, you need to give your life away. And I, I said, you know, what do you mean? He said, you will find your life when you give it away. And it's a, and it's in the Bible. Jesus oh, yeah. Yeah. says that, right? Um, and I began to, I thought, man, you know what? I think at this point I had maybe nine months sobriety. And I thought, I am going to go find, or I actually prayed it. Probably one of the most honest and sincere prayers. God, help me find All some right. people that have nine, that, that, that want to get nine months sobriety. And I began to focus not on my own pain and my own problems. All right, what's the greater purpose? How can I go help somebody to get me out of mat mode? And that recipe, those set of instructions have carried me and helped me. And so that's what we did. I, I, I saved up $500. I've resigned from pastoring. My wife and I are just on our own. Wow. My wife had a gift. She's never worked before, stay-at-home mom. Uh-huh. She likes to paint. And so she began to paint some rental homes for an investor that we had found, a guy that had a bunch of rental homes and that loved us and our story. And he said, Matt, would you cut the grass? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I'm cutting grass. She's painting. We're re- uh-huh. getting our marriage back. And I'm learning how to give my life away and this new journey with with the Lord. And we saved up $500 to, to pay five guys who were struggling with alcohol Wow! Um, to come and, and help us paint and pressure wash and cut grass. And so it was a Sunday night. I'll never forget. They're supposed to show up Monday morning. And I felt like I was going to break a world record again because uh-huh. I'm, I'm learning how to give my life away authentically. And I wanted to help these five guys. I knew I was going to give them $100 each. I just couldn't wait. And the next morning, 19 guys show up in my driveway. What? And I'm like, they had heard, hey, this guy, Matt's going to pay us a hundred bucks. And, and uh, anyway, 19 guys <laughs> show up. $1,900 later. Yeah. And I'm 1400 short. Yeah. And, uh, and I literally, my wife said, what are we going to do? And I said, man, this is God's problem. Yeah. Not mine. This is what we wanted to do. So we, I send them loose, man. We're cutting grass. We're painting at 11 o'clock. My phone rings and it's an investor that we had painted for two months before. And he said, Matt, what you doing? Uh, I'm in town. I said, Hey man, I'm in the middle of a project. Do you have something? I thought maybe he wanted us to do another yeah. job. And he said, Hey, I've got a check for you. And I said, well, you've already paid us for that. He said, "Uh, did you paint the ceiling and the trim or just the walls? I said, well, we just painted the walls for you. You've already paid me. He said, man, I'm in town and I paid you for the ceiling and the trim. I just want to bless you. Uh, I want to give you this money. I said, Mike, how much is that check for? He said, $1,400. What? And I said, where are you at? Because I knew at that point I was talking to Jesus. Absolutely. Yep. Saying, you give your life away. You'll find life like you've never dreamed. Yeah. So I go meet him. I hug him. I'm crying. He's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I said, you have no idea, man. And he wrote it to me, which was weird. Not the business. So I was uh-huh. able to cash it and go. And at the end of the day, that began 
the ministry that we're in four years later. Yeah. We, and the first guy that we hired that day is still with me today. He's one of our directors. Um, but that was the beginning of God saying, Matt, if you give your life away to other people's, not only will your hurt go away, that's the recipe for your pain to go away, but you'll experience life like you've never experienced it before. Um, I want people now to hear just how incredible your life has has come full circle and describe how you've transitioned from shoot for life to now life house and the impact that you're making. Because man, when I hear this part of your story, I'm like, look, if God can do that with Matt, if he can do that with me, he can do that with anybody. So tell him what's going on now, Matt. We we get to see miracle after miracle every day. So we've continued that. If we just give our lives away, we know that we're right in the the will of God, Uh no matter what. Right. And so we work for a group called Lifehouse. We run the Montgomery campus here in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, we have another campus in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And it's a second chance uh, university. So men that come off the streets or jail or prison, if they want another crack at life, um, they can come to Lifehouse and they work for us. We have a full staffing company. We manage their money for them. We've got guys this morning that are working at a steel plant or at a bridge company All right. or they're at a, they're at a restaurant. And uh, so it's a one-year experience. They come in and and uh, we disciple them. We love on them. And then when they graduate, we have a graduation here in just a few weeks. Some of these guys will walk out of here with fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in their savings account. Wow! And have a chance to to get that second chance in life with some rebuilt tools that when they have a hard day, they don't have to go drink yeah. or use it. Whatever obstacle life's thrown at them. So that's what we do now. Yeah, man, what a privilege to be able to pour into guys and to see and the difference that it's making in their life um, who who are working hard and all they need is somebody who will believe in them and give them a second chance, um, kind of like God did with you, right? Yeah, he, you know, and what they don't know is it keeps me sober today, yeah. <laughs> right? Whether they make it or they don't make it, hey, I, you know, it's the recipe for me. And then when they catch it, they begin to give it away. And uh, to me, that's, that, that's what brought me out of it. I had yeah. to get out of Matt mode. I had to face it and be authentic and realize I don't have all the answers. There is a God that, that has a, a purpose yeah. for all of right. us. We're not made for this life. I believe we're made for heaven. We're citizens here just hanging out until you know we get to go and, and be with my mom again right? and see the real reason this all happened. Um, and I, I, that's the faith I hang my hat on. I believe it uh, with all my my heart. I believe in the Bible from the beginning to the end that God's got a purpose for yep. all of this. We'll see it one day. We don't see it now, but I don't put my faith in alcohol any longer. I put my faith in a God that that loves me and knows that yeah. hey, go give your life away today. That pain's gonna go away tonight, and uh, and that's what we do, man. And it's a pro- powerful motivator when you know a lot of people are looking up to you and they're expecting you to live out what you say in front of them and they get a chance to see you, you know, in your your raw moments. Um, there's some people that are listening right now and they have a buddy who's made some big mistakes and now needs a second chance at life. How did they get their buddy connected with LifeHouse? Yeah, go to the, the LifeHouse.fm, F as in Frank, M as in Mary. The Lifehouse or Google Matt Bostick. Get my email, uh, matt.bostick at thelifehouse.fm. We can get you plugged in. We've got a campus in Louisiana. I'm heading out there today to our main campus. Nice. And uh, yeah, yeah, you know, Jeff, it's given me a life that I never thought that I could have. Uh, The passions of my heart were to 
share God, the love of God. I just didn't know how to do that with yeah. my pain, you know, and now I get to, you never know, you know, what's going to happen, who's going to call us today. And, and so they're looking, the people that are hurting today, they're looking for someone that authentically loves them yeah. and sees what they, what they could be and not as they are right now. And someone did that for me. They saw my potential in my pain and didn't see me as the guy that was breaking wine bottles and, and passing out before my wife's birthday. That wasn't, they could see not just the behavior, they could see past it to who God really wanted me to be. And that's who I want to be to the next guy right. that calls me. And uh, that's the hope. You need that friend. You need that person that can see past it. We'll put links in the notes to this episode to the lifehouse.fm and to Matt if you want to know more. But Matt, I, I want to tell you, man, I'm really inspired by the way that you dug down, got serious and dug yourself out of that hole that alcohol put you in after 20 years. Um, I also really want to say, man, your wife is an amazing woman because... Yeah. Um, had she not dug her heels in a little bit, maybe you don't get that serious. It, like other people, just watching the man that she loves, th you know, throw his life away, um, give it away to the bottle is hard, sometimes too hard for most people. So when you go home today, would you tell her that we think she's unbeatable too? Yeah, and I will go home and tell my wife what you said because huh. she is the, the backbone. Jeff, she's loved me unconditionally. Yeah. She was the picture of Jesus to me, really. Uh -huh. She's just uh, an amazing, beautiful lady. Six kids and now three grandchildren. All right. And, uh, nothing I could do to deserve her. She's yeah. awesome. Yeah. But thank well, you I... for having me on, bro. So much fun. Let's do it again. Yeah, man. Sounds great. Have a great day. Thank you, man. See ya. There you have it. 20 years of digging himself into a hole because of the downward spiral that fear and pain caused him after losing his mother his father moving on so quickly. And if you're right where Matt was, if you're struggling right now, we want to be a resource to you. If you're really wrestling and you need some help, we've got a group of people that we want to get you connected to. We call them the Unbeatable Army. It is a online community, totally free. We connect with you. We'll send you resources all week or during the week. We'll give you a free video, free downloads. We'll give you an email delivered to your inbox each week. If you want to become part of the Unbeatable Army, all you got to do is just go over to unbeatablearmy.com and sign up right there. We've got a lot of people that are subscribing to this podcast. We've got a lot of people that are connected with us on social media. And if you want to find us on social media, all you got to do is search for just about any platform. Go to at Unbeatable Podcast. You're going to find some pretty incredible people on social media that are following us as well. People like our fan of the week for this week, Eric Korn. Eric you're awesome. Thank you for the way that you stay connected with us. Thank you for the way that you engage with us on social media. Eric, you're amazing. And I just wanted to say to you, you're awesome. Thanks for being connected with us. I hope you're as fired up by this episode with Matt Bostic as I was. And I will see you right back here next week. God bless.